Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast. Talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den under the stairs at Dirk Broken Towers in Adlington, Chorley, in the northwest of England. I'm surrounded by my stuff. I've even brought some stuff down from the archive in the attic for this one. On my right is my great library of RPGs and my grognard files. And on my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor and eternal champion Caroline Monroe. Hello, I'll just give it a tap. Ah yes, my favourite. I love it when uh, Margiana pops out from the golden voyage of Sinbad. If she appeared in Glorantha, she would be an initiate of Yaraanis the savage six-armed goddess, daughter of the Red Emperor from the hated Lunatarsh. This podcast started life three years ago, and the first file I opened was RuneQuest, as it was the first game I played. I'm reopening the file once again to bring the story right up to date. Before that, we've had another review on iTunes, and this time it's from Wolf Shield. I came across these episodic delights a few months back, but I've waited until I listened to them all before leaving a review. Dirk, the welcoming host, has an easygoing, laid-back style who clearly puts a lot of prep into the content he covers. That content covers mainly the RPG scene from the early 80s, but he also sprinkles in the new, so there's something for everyone. The highlight of every episode is when he's joined by his longtime friend, the witty, good-humoured and knowledgeable Blythe. Hmm. Their shared history and passion for the hobby and love of hobnobs create a magical chemistry that's hard to fake and easy to enjoy. Subscribe. You won't regret it. Oh, thank you for that. We love hearing from you and appreciate it when we're given a signal boost. So, if you like the Grognard Files, please tell others. If you don't, well, bugger off. At the time of recording, July 2018, it's the 40th anniversary of the publication of RuneQuest. It was a hastily printed edition, where the company's name was spelt incorrectly, as was the name of Greg Stafford's epic setting... Glorontha. The second edition, produced a year later, is the one we played. We cover it extensively in the first episode of this podcast. But this episode is about the third edition of the rules, which was produced by the war game publisher Avalon Hill in 1984, and how that edition nearly sank the game altogether until it was revived by fans. So much so that the new edition of RuneQuest Roleplaying in Galantha, or RQG, as all the cool kids are calling it, has just been released to critical acclaim. 
The third edition rules were produced under licence by Gaines Workshop in the UK, three years after the initial release. At Daily Dwarf, the armchair adventurer on Twitter, has written a wonderful survey of this unsettling period for the discerning RuneQuester. We continue playing RQ2 until the Games Workshop version came out. Our resident rules lawyer, Judge Blythe, joins me later to look at the rules changes. I know for many people that this was the first edition that they experienced, but for us, it seemed like a stepped backwards. Judge Blythe explores why we felt uneasy about the change. The publication of RQ3 contributed to us stopping playing during the 90s. We're very pleased to have Michael O'Brien, also known as Mob, the Vice President of Chaosium, who will be familiar to those who follow Chaosium on social media channels. While we were turning our backs on the hobby, he was working out how he could transform it. He set about changing the fortunes of RuneQuest by inspiring new content and a new approach to the Avalon Hill line. For a short time, there was a RuneQuest renaissance. Mob tells the story of how the fans of RuneQuest and Glorantha kept the flames alive. In the second part of the episode, we bring things up to date and with Mob's help, look at RuneQuest role-playing in Glorantha. I'll tell you a bit more about it at the end. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open Box! Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards. How who we were as gamers have shaped who we are now. And we're delighted to have uh, the vanguard of not one renaissance, but two. It's Chaosium's Australian Veep. It's Michael O'Brien, otherwise known as Mob. Hello, Mob. Hey, Dirk, it's great to be on. How does it feel to be that person who's the leader of two renaissance of RuneQuest? Well, the, the RuneQuest renaissance, as it was called, was the one back in the, the 1990s. Maybe this one is the RuneQuest counter-reformation. Uh, Who knows? But uh, <laughs> history will later will later rename, give it its uh, appropriate name. It, it is super exciting. It's wonderful to be involved in bringing out a new edition of RuneQuest now. I've got that same sense of way back in the 90s when we were doing all of those fun things with uh, uh, the, the releases that came out at that time for RuneQuest 3 under Ken Rolston. Hopefully, though, this one will have a bit more legs because that was a brief flowering, I guess you could say, of I think some really nice stuff that came out. But we're in for this for the long haul. How we normally start this uh, mob is asking our guests to just relate how you started in the hobby. What what were your first games, and what did you what did you play, and who did you play with? I started playing role playing games at uh, high school or junior high, I guess is what Americans would call it. I think I was about thirteen, like just about everybody else back then. I did actually start with D&D. I started with that uh, blue box with the dragon on the cover. But very shortly after that, um, a friend of mine picked up a very interesting 
I'm going to say it's a booklet. It wasn't really a game at the, the local game store, and it was a booklet called Apple Lane, the original uh, yellow-covered version. And we looked at this game. It was amazingly fascinating because none of the characters had levels. It had this amazing uh, world of Glorantha. There was just kind of uh, hints, tantalizing hints in, in that, that original book. There was a whole lot of things in it that just weren't D&D that seemed very fascinating. So we tried to play RuneQuest by reverse engineering what we just had in that Apple Lane box. We didn't get the rules until sometime later, the RuneQuest rules. So this would have been in about uh, 1979, 1980. We We got the RuneQuest 2 rules. We didn't go back from there because it's just such a wonderful system. We, I have played, I did play other role-playing games throughout that whole whole period, but I'm going to say that uh, RuneQuest was probably the the core of the play that we did all the way through uh, high school and also then on into university. And and what was it about RuneQuest that appealed to you particularly? I I loved two things. I loved uh, both the actual game system, which you know. Because D&D, with its strange constraints of levels and lack of realism and the alignments and stuff like that, that just never rang very true to me. I also really liked, and, and still really like, the fact that in RuneQuest, combat is visceral and exciting and dangerous. I love the fact that, you know, the mightiest character can be taken out by a Trollkin, uh, you know, with a yeah. spear. I just think that makes that makes the the gaming exciting. It can still be heroic, but is dangerous, and I, and I love that aspect of it. The other aspect that I uh, that I loved from that very beginning was the world of Glorantha as well, and I love the fact that there were back in those days there were really just tantalising glimpses of what it was about. You know, you could try and find out more. You could create your own stuff. And it was a, it's, it was almost like a, a wonderful shared co-creation in, in ways. And I, I'm sure that we went off in all sorts of uh, non-canonical ways. But the great thing about that was even back then, Grant Stafford was saying, your Glorantha may vary. Yes. There is no one true way you can you can create create and play it the way you want. And I think that's a that's a wonderful message to have out there. And we and we certainly did. Have you always lived in Melbourne? Well, I grew up in Melbourne and I did my formative years of being a role player in Melbourne and uh, I went to university in Melbourne and, and was part of a university games club there. It was originally called the Melbourne University Dungeons and Dragons Association or MUDDA, M-U-D-D-A. It later became called Madge Inc. So it must have incorporated and I'm not exactly sure what Madge <laughs> who Madge was or, or what it stood for. But anyway, that club, uh, me and a couple of friends who ended up being uh, co-writers, you'll see their names in the credits of Sun County, we ended up uh, running a club campaign for RuneQuest that uh, went for several years, would often have a dozen or maybe 20 players turning up on a Friday night to play it, and uh, we had lots of fun, and, and some of the material from that club campaign, which was sort of set in our own part of Glorantha, we just made up ourselves, did actually end up 
in between the covers of Sun County. What was the gaming culture like um, in, in, in Melbourne? Was it was it easy to get hold of uh, gaming material? Um, yeah, we had we had some pretty good game shops that would sell things. This is, of course, all all way before the days of buying things online and so on. Um, stuff here was never cheap because um, I guess it had to come a long way. RuneQuest three was outrageously expensive, which I think wasn't uh, wasn't helpful. But uh, no, the the gaming culture was very strong. There were there were conventions. There were lots of people writing their own material. Because material was expensive, uh, didn't necessarily get here quickly. That did develop a culture of people writing stuff themselves, and that particularly came out in Call of Cthulhu. And that's why you'll see that in the credits of a lot of Call of Cthulhu releases, there are lots of Australian names. I'm talking about people like Mark Morrison and Penelope Love and Richard Watts and so on, who uh, were a very strong part of that Call of Cthulhu circle of people writing things. And that continues to this day. Let's just let's talk about Quest Three and the Avalon Hill release. So, what effect did that have on you when that was originally released? Before before it came out, we found out how much it was going to cost, and it was like double the price of anything else you could buy at the time, and that was deeply shocking. I think it was like fifty-four dollars Australian to buy it, which you know back in like nineteen eighty-three is a lot of money, particularly when the equivalent, say, D and D books were selling for half that price. Then, when we actually got the release, I think there was a profound sense of disappointment at the physical quality of what was being put out, and. You know, that's the infamous paper covers of the books. Because, you know, as we know as role players, you want your you want your materials to be hardy because they're gonna get a lot of use. That was that was profoundly disappointing as well. And I, I think that starting off with that was a very bad move. Then of course the problem was and I and I outlined all of this in the uh, the ruined quest article, which I think we'll probably talk about in a moment, was the very strange release of products that came out for RuneQuest um, after that, which I don't think were very well planned to encourage large penetration because RuneQuest 2 at that point had been extremely popular and in some parts of the world, like I think in the UK, that was right up there rivaling um, D&D, wasn't it? As yeah, a, very as much a... so, yeah. yeah. And, and, and now from your position as uh, Vice President of uh, Chaosium and so that people understand the, the rationale why um, Chaosium handed over this to uh, Avalon Hill, what, why, why was that? Well, be, because, and, and it, was a, it was a sensible decision based on the information they had at the time. Avalon Hill paid them a large sum of money to start with, which is, which is always good. And Avalon Hill also promised that they would be doing things like promotion and distribution and so on. So this was uh, thought to be a great opportunity to be able to expand the reach of, of the game. Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of the things that were promised really came to, came to pass. I think another big mistake was the fact that RuneQuest 3 became a generic role-playing game with, you know, Glorantha removed or held or, or held to one side because I think that re that removed a lot of the uh, flavour from the game. It was a sensible decision to, to consider. I think the problem was that uh, Avalon Hill didn't really live up to their side of the 
the agreement. I seem to remember that in interviews with Greg Stafford at the time were saying that Chaos seemed to move towards more of a de- design house than a publishing and distribution uh, outfit. Um, so this would free them up with more time um, to concentrate on, on product for Glorantha. But that never really materialised, did it? Sadly, no. And it, look, it's one of those it's one of those really sad what ifs. You could say that if they didn't do the Avalon Hill, I, I won Avalon Hill did. I wonder what would have transpired otherwise. But it is a case that it was a capacity issue because don't forget that at the same time, uh, Call of Cthulhu was becoming uh, a runaway success as well. And there's just only so much, you know, people can do it with with their time. And and so around this time, you when did you start getting into the fan activity and um, the fanzine culture? Because you, you you were contributing. Um, to that one, yeah, around this time. Oh, I was, yeah. So um, there's sort of two steps to that. I grew very frustrated, like I think many other fans did in the uh, in the 1980s with what was coming out for RuneQuest. I think that the product releases for RuneQuest 3 were disappointing in that the choice of what was coming out and also some of the physical production quality of what was being released. I think the biggest frustration was the fact that that there didn't seem to be anything new to play for RuneQuest in Glorantha. There was a lot of uh, reprinted material. There were some fantastic Fantasy Earth uh, stuff released. There was the Vikings box and the Japanese Land of Ninja box. But in terms of playing in Glorantha, there were no new scenarios, nothing new. And that was a source of frustration. I can proudly say that I had my first manuscript rejected by Chaosium, I think it was in about 1987, because I sent them a uh, a manuscript of a, a setting in Glorantha and some scenarios. And I actually even went and met with Greg and Sandy when I went on a trip to the United States and had a good chat to them about uh, what could could possibly be done and I, I think that planted the seed for what eventually became Sun County then when I was uh, in Australia I got a letter one day I opened it up and it contained a fanzine called Tales of the Reaching Moon and this was in either late 1989 or early 1990 and what had happened was I had written some RuneQuest material for White Dwarf magazine and they covered RuneQuest quite extensively. And Games Workshop actually had the RuneQuest license at, at that point. And I'd written some material for them. And this was exactly at the moment that White Dwarf changed its editorial stance and was only going to focus on their own material. So the person that was uh, working as the RuneQuest sub-editor at the time, whose name is John Quaife, he sent me a letter and it said, you know, very sadly, I know we've accepted this stuff for publication in White Dwarf. Unfortunately, we've changed the editorial stance. We're not going to be doing RuneQuest anymore. However, maybe this fanzine would be interested in your material. And he sent me, and I thank him very much for this. I'm very grateful because I think it changed my life, sent me a copy of Tales of the Reaching Moon issue one. And do you you remember that? At all, Dirk. I was away from role playing at this point. I uh, I would enter the deep freeze. So this is fascinating oh. to hear. So so tales number one 
came out in 1989, and it was the brainchild of a British team led by David Hall. I got this magazine. I I loved it, and I immediately wrote to David Hall. And, of course, back in those days, when you write to somebody, you actually wrote it, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and sent it away. And I immediately wrote to him and said, I love this magazine. I want to write some stuff from it. You can have the stuff that was going to be in White Dwarf. Tell me more. I'm so excited. I'll tell them my friends in Australia. That became that began a very fruitful collaboration to the point that by issue four, I ended up being the uh, one of the associate editors of that magazine, was primarily responsible from issue four for helping put together the issues. And uh, issue four was even called an Australian special because it had a whole lot of Australian uh, content in it, in- including art. So... Tales filled, I think, a vacuum at the time. And the vacuum was that there was a real lack coming out from <coughs> official sources of new playable Glorantha material. And that's something we tried to do in Tales of the Reaching Moon. So having like, you know, scenarios and and so on. And Tales lasted for 20 issues and I think got progressively more wonderful looking as time went on in terms of its production quality and started having colour covers after I think it was issue 13 brought on some amazing artists, uh, Dan Barker being I think one of the uh, the most prolific and, 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 and most identifiable of those he did a lot of, uh, of the great covers, uh, others including Simon Bray who uh, is still doing some art for us today Tales, I think, became a very, uh, for, for Gloranthan fandom, became a bit of a rallying point for, for people to, to really engage in the world of Glorantha. I, I do know that that was also the forum where you set out this manifesto, if you like, of Ruin Quest, which was an analysis, wasn't it, of some of the damage that had been done by Avalon Hill up until that point. What happened is, by the early 1990s, Avalon Hill had, had, had come to the realisation that what they were doing wasn't wasn't working. They were keen to try and find a better way to make uh, RuneQuest more popular and, and interesting to the to the fan base, and they did reach out. So this report that was, was written and was later published in Tales of the Reaching Moon actually went to Avalon Hill saying these are the these are the sort of things that we think should be done to uh, improve the line. This was actually also recently republished, that that whole article, in Blackgate magazine. At that point, Avalon Hill had appointed a new new editor for role-playing games. He didn't really have any background in RuneQuest or Glorantha. He he had his own role-playing game that he was uh, trying to get up at uh, Avalon Hill. And was 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 not very experienced. They also had a <clears throat> graphic designer, who unfortunately, and I feel very sorry for him, particularly because of the excoriating things we sometimes said about <laughs> his art. He was not an artist. He was a graphic designer, and they forced him to actually do artwork as well, which I think was very sad. What Evelyn Hill did do. And this was the whole way through the pro- process. Is they they spent serious money on the cover art of all of the stuff they bought out. And I think the cover art was great. It's just that once you opened the the books, uh, the art ranged from 
occasional flashes of brilliance down to excrementally bad, I think <laughs> would be the, the most polite way of, of putting it. So, so this report had, had highlighted those sort of issues. It highlighted the fact that role-playing gamers need stuff that's, that's more durable than the, way, the format that they were presenting. And the biggest thing that that, point, that, that report hammered home is that still... Seven years later, after the game had been released, there was still no new Glorantha material for people to play. People were still waiting for it. Um, eventually, my frustration with that got to the point that I thought, well, um, rather than just complain about it, I'm going to do something about it. So I created, and this was in uh, like 1991, Sun County. Not only did I write it, uh, and I gathered together a team of people to, to help me with that, including some people who'd worked on the, the club campaign, I sent that to Avalon Hill completely laid out. I was using a uh, layout program called Ready, Set, Go, which is uh, no longer with us. I remember doing that on my Mac Plus. I used a whole lot of art from... Tales of the Reaching Moon inside it to give examples. I did a whole lot of things with uh, like sidebars and boxes and things to say that, you know, you've got to do this to, to create some interest because the, the layout was just abysmal in uh, some of the later uh, Avalon Hill releases. Interestingly, they wrote back to me and, 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 and wanted to sign it on the spot. So, so that was really exciting. To get that to get that back, so that required Greg and Chaosium to sign off on it too, which they which they did, which was which was wonderful. So I initially started that process working with the editor that they had at Avalon Hill, and <clears throat> that was a little bit of a frustrating process because that, that editor really didn't know very much about uh, RuneQuest or Glorantha or uh, where we should be going with all of this. But eventually, he was replaced by Ken Ralston. And this, is, this was a direct response to our Ruined Quest report, saying what needed to be done. So Avalon Hill made a, a genuine attempt to see if they could uh, resurrect the line and really kick up the quality by bringing in the Runesar Ken Ralston. Ken and, uh, and I worked very solidly on making Sun County the first of the what became known as the uh, RuneQuest Renaissance releases. And I'm very, very happy with the, the final result of that. I think it, uh, it, it really reflected the vision of what I put together with a whole lot of stuff to play. I am very, very thankful for having Ken involved in, in the editing process of that because I think he helped turn it into the, the release it became. I've, I've got a copy of it in my hand now, and it, all those years later. You have to say, uh, Mob, that this is a fantastic resource. It's packed full of adventure. And so if you were pitching this to uh, new games masters who may not have set their adventures in some county, how would you, how would you pitch it to them? Oh, well, the one-sentence the one elevator pitch is Spartans in the Wild West. The great thing about Sun County, and this is, this is, this is exactly the way it was envisaged, 
was because they are xenophobic outsiders on the very fringes of uh, civilization and, and, and the wildlands of Prax, is that you can have player characters who know very little about the world and explore the world, which means you don't have to have a gigantic knowledge dump about Glorantha, and even the GM doesn't really need to know very much as well. So the idea of Sun County was to make a ideal beginner's book that people could then continue to explore the world from. And, and I like to think that it worked quite well for that. Um, it describes a, a place that was originally described in uh, Big Rubble and Pavis from RuneQuest 2 and, and expands on that. And so you can go back to those old, you know, those older materials as well. But then it has uh, self-contained adventures that happen in Sun County. And, and Sun County is um, a small theocratic society that exists along the River of Cradles in Prax, if, uh, if people are unfamiliar with that. Um, the other thing that I think that Sun County set the mark for going forward with the uh, releases, these RuneQuest Renaissance releases, is the cover art, yes, which I think is very evocative. Uh, we got an artist called Roger Raup to do the the front cover and the front cover has a whole lot of sundome templars um with the sundome temple behind these days of course we would uh talk directly with the artist and be able to email lots of links and things like that but i worked on the cover design of sun county with roger and again that was mostly done by sending big envelopes stuffed with photocopies of descriptions and, and so on. So it was a, a much slower process in those days. When he sent back the sketches to me of, you know, how we were envisaging that, I was just so excited because it, it really came out exactly how it was being pictured in my mind. Uh, Roger then did the covers of uh, River of Cradles and Shadows on the Borderlands. So these are the next RuneQuest release, uh, releases that followed. And they also, I think, are extremely evocative. I particularly love the uh, River of Cradles cover, which uh, I think what you want to have in a cover is for a role-playing game is you want to look at it and as a player and say, oh, I can see my, my, my character in that situation, you know, being part of that action. You know, you want to have mystery and excitement and engagement, and I think that works really well. Yeah, I think I think as a package... Um, these set of adventure packs uh, really do that, don't they? They really, they're really inspirational, and it must feel good um, that you uh, have been part of writing the classic adventure. Because uh, a lot of the people that I've encountered, uh, Mob, over the uh, over the years since doing the podcast, have um, said how much uh, of an influence some county had on them, and how that hit them at a time, and particularly. Um, People holding affection, Rabbit Rabbit Hat Farm, in as much affection as uh, Gring, Gringle's Pawn Shop. Oh, that's that's nice to hear. Yeah, Rabbit Hat Farm is an adventure that's in um, that's in Sun County, and it's a combination of like a classic dungeon crawl with uh, some 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 mystery of going on above the ground as well, and it, it's actually quite deadly in its own way yes. as well. So that was originally a scenario that we played out in our club campaign, in our role-playing game club back at uh, the University of Melbourne. So 
it had its uh, it had its origins with actual play um, that was written by me and my very good friend Trevor Ackley, and we both GM'd that adventure. and And this didn't actually come into the final Sun County adventure, but we did something very experimental at the time in our role playing game club, where we had two parties exploring Rabbit Hat Farm at the same time. <laughs> And what we wanted to do, and it didn't, it didn't really quite work out, but, but we, were, we were trying this experimentally, is we wanted two parties of player characters to encounter each other in these caverns and not really understand that the other party was player characters and see what happens. Oh, that's a great so we, idea. Yeah. yeah, we were trying to do that in two rooms. And Trev, because he was a bit of a, 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 a technical bod, He'd set up a um, a telephone. This is look. This is all before mobile phones and things. He'd actually set up a a a fixed paired telephone line, so we could talk to each other about what was happening. And we were trying to set it up so these two player character parties would meet in the dark and and fight each other. But I think they actually twigged what was going on. It was it was a it was a bold experiment. We were. We were doing fun things like that at the uh, at the time, but uh, I, I, I'm really happy with the way that Sun County came out. I think it led on really well to uh, River of Cradles, and then I think one of the best adventure supplements that you can buy for any RuneQuest release anywhere, which is Shadows on the Borderlands. The best scenarios written uh, for any role-playing game, not just RuneQuest, is Galmata's Vision, which is a scenario in by Mike Dawson. That is set in Sun County. It's about a... It, it, it has a very Call of Cthulhu feel, actually, because you go to a village that, it, that things are not as they are, and you need to investigate it and explore it. You don't necessarily have to end that uh, scenario in combat, though sometimes it ends up in an awful massacre one way or the other. That was written for RuneQuest 3. It could work very easily in uh, other game systems as well, like HeroQuest, and I think it would make a wonderful RQG scenario <clears throat> as well. So that's in Shadows on the, on the Borderlands. The next release that came out after that uh, was called Strangers in Prax. I have a uh, section in that called the Lunar Coders, um, which I... I wrote, um, and that was one that tried to also be very different because it portrayed the Lunar Empire as the good guys or not necessarily the bad guys because the Lunars had been the primary antagonists in RuneQuest up to that point. And this was to create some non-player characters that were that you didn't have any cheap and cheesy, cheesy reasons to hate them. They were hyper-competent. They were very good but they did actually represent the Lunar Empire, and I had a lot of fun writing that. Uh, I also designed the cover art for that book, and I don't think that came out quite as well in the execution as the, the earlier ones, but I'm still very happy with uh, how that's portrayed and, and those characters. I, I really enjoy doing uh, art direction. I've actually done some of the work for that with some of the pieces that appear in uh, RuneQuest G, and I did a lot of the work with uh, Rob Heinsu for the art direction for the forthcoming 13th Age Lorantha book. What, what happened after these uh, Renaissance uh, uh, supplements were produced? 
Well, unfortunately, um, the the RuneQuest renaissance, as we'll call it, of the 1990s was short-lived. Uh, it just brought out those those releases. The the last one that came out was called Lords of Terror, which was uh, sort of an update of the classic RQ2 book, Cults of Terror. That also has an absolutely glorious cover. It's like a stained glass window. And uh, I had some material in that too. That was the last one done with uh, with Ken, and then Ken moved on. Avalon Hill had kind of, at that point, given up on trying to resurrect the line. It was a little bit of too too little, too late, sadly. So those those releases all received critical acclaim, but I, I don't think transferred into turning this, you know, revivifying RuneQuest into a challenger to D and D by any means. At that point, I think uh, role playing was not role playing games themselves were not on the up like they are now as well. So that also coincided with. Uh, the declining fortunes at Chaosium itself, uh, that culminated with Greg leaving uh, Chaosium in 1998 and taking some of the IP with him, including Glorantha. Uh, RuneQuest ended up being licensed elsewhere, and uh, uh, Mongoose bought out two versions of RuneQuest, and they set some of it in the second age of, of Glorantha. Tales of the Reaching Moon was continuing at that point, so that that in the way um, held the flag, flew the flag for Gloranthan fandom, and that went right right up until the early 2000s. I think the last issue of Tales came out in 2001, and I think that everybody has to be extremely thankful to David Hall for helping keep that flag flying and the flame alive. So I think the fans were the ones that uh, kept kept the flame alive i think we 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 should be very very thankful for that well well before um we say goodbye for this this part and uh, next time we'll look at uh what what's happened in the second reformation or whatever we want to call it yeah the counter yeah yeah i just want to ask you a question now um when I, when I look at Sun County, there's one particular NPC that I, I do like, and I wanted to know whether he, he was a, a part of your campaign, and that's Mellow Yellow. Oh, Mellow. so Mellow Yellow. Um, as we know, RuneQuest has a number of uh, races and species that seem to capture the popular imagination or, or sometimes the reverse. Uh, one, of course, is the character race known as the Ducks, which are... Uh, humanoid-type ducks, as we know. Uh, even people that know nothing about Glorantha and RuneQuest sometimes know about the ducks and have various reactions to that. Another player character race that you can have are the baboons, which are intelligent baboons. And Mellow Yellow, yes, indeed, he did start as a NPC in our club campaign. And he is a very strange baboon because he is a baboon that somehow got a vision that led him to try and join the Yelmalio cult. And to do that, he shaved himself and painted himself yellow and uh, tried to join tried to join Yelmalio, which is a very weird thing uh, for a baboon to do. And he kind of hangs around at the uh, fringes of uh, Yelmalio society, always trying to ingratiate himself to them, and they, they find him very strange. Interestingly, uh, I've written the future history of Sun County because the new RuneQuest 
uh, role-playing Glorantha, we move the timeline forward from sort of uh, in the RuneQuest, in the Glorantha timing from 1620, the sort of 1621 period, it's now up to 1627. So a lot of things have happened in those intervening six or seven years. I've I've written the future history of Sun County that goes up to that point. It's it's about a 50,000-word document now. And I will say that Mellow Yellow has a continued presence throughout that document. In fact, you could say an almost instrumental presence to the point that he becomes quite a heroic character by the end. Oh, that's good to know because I think he's such a brilliantly drawn npc and um there's something very um endearing and yet pathetic about his situation so it's good to know that he's got yeah (laughs) yeah i think it is it's i i I like the fact that the sundomers uh you can inject some humor into uh into the sundomers yeah um there's a there's a little bit of a sense of a ridiculousness of having uh ancient spartans in the wild west civilized Greek hoplites on sort of the uh, in sort of a Mad Max dystopia almost I guess you could say that's great well thank you very much until next time Uh, no worries Dirk I really enjoyed the chat the white dwarf three is it the magic number in autumn of 1984 it seemed like everything in the RPG garden was rosy role playing had become incredibly popular the satanic panic in the US notwithstanding and the major companies were on a roll. TSR were masters of all they surveyed, taking Dungeons & Dragons to the masses, churning out products as fast as they could. The seminal module Ravenloft had just been released. Games Designers Workshop were busy adding to the long line of little black books for Traveller. And Chaosium? Well, Call of Cthulhu had become a big seller, and the old warhorse... RuneQuest was doing great business too, with Pavis and the Big Rubble, the latest in a series of well-received supplements. But Chaosium had bigger plans for RuneQuest that would hopefully take it to new, untapped markets, a licensing deal with a big player of the war games field, Avalon Hill. Some weren't so sure that this was such a great idea though. Ian Livingstone in between busying himself with his rapidly expanding fighting fantasy gamebook empire, wrote a prescient editorial in White Dwarf 58. Could RuneQuest's popularity survive the switch, he wondered, particularly with its high price tag and the fact that Games Workshop's licence to print RuneQuest in the UK was to terminate. He finished with the warning, I can't see too many people coming in at the new price. And that new price, as listed in Open Box Review in issue 64, was £40 for the deluxe edition. 40 quid. Back in 1984's Britain, that kind of money could buy you a 100 head of cattle, plus a small holding to farm them on. Good grief. Anyway, RuneQuest stalwart, Oliver Dickinson, a man who'd forgotten more about the details of strike rank rules and the arcane philosophies of Lankar Mai than most of us could ever know, set about reviewing the new edition. 
He mentioned the refocusing of the setting to a fantasy Europe, with Glorantha relegated to a short summary booklet. But most of the review was a bit dry, concentrating on the rules, minutiae, and the changes from the RuneQuest 2nd edition system. Now, this might have been exactly what existing RuneQuest players wanted to know, but it didn't really sell the game to anyone coming to RuneQuest 3 cold. Bless him though, Oliver Dickinson was loyal to the last, pushing RuneQuest 3 as an improvement over RuneQuest 2, and even trying to make a case for the largely unloved fatigue rules. Out of curiosity, I also went back to White Dwarf issue 11 to take a look at the review in open box for RuneQuest 2. Not exactly a barnstormer either. With the advent of this new edition of RuneQuest though, where did it leave the articles and scenarios for the game in the pages of White Dwarf? Would the magazine target a particular version? I think Dave Morris's mind was clear. In his introduction to the Rune Rights column of issue 69, he made a corset comment about RuneQuest 3, saying that if it had made an effort to streamline the rules, instead of muddying the field with fatigue points and what have you, it might have been worth the price tag. Confusion remained, though, so a clarifying comment was made in the letters page of issue 71. Rune Rights would solely focus on additions to the RuneQuest 2 rule system, since the widespread acceptance of RuneQuest 3 has yet to be proven. So that settled it, right? Well, not really. In the letter page of the next issue, there was the first hint that the Games Workshop edition of RuneQuest 3. So the good ship RuneQuest continued to be rudderless, and despite the game's popularity in the UK, voted Best RPG at Games Day Awards fans. Rune Rights itself finished after issue 73. Oliver Dickinson returned in issue 75 with a one-page article titled RuneQuest Ruminations – Thoughts on RuneQuest 3. But rather than issuing a rallying cry to RuneQuest aficiendos to embrace the new version, he seemed to get tangled in the weeds once again, teasing apart the rules in minute detail. For a one-page article, it was a bit of a slog to read. But his loyalty remained absolute, once again justifying the inclusion of those maligned fatigue points. It's interesting to contrast Oliver Dickinson's comments with those of Ken Rolston in Dragon issue 124. Yes, Apparently there were other RPG magazines, who knew? Where he described RuneQuest 3 as a textbook example of how to cripple a good role-playing product. There just didn't seem to be a clear sense of direction. And so after the article in White Dwarf, yes, there was nothing. RuneQuest disappeared from the pages completely. From being one of the mainstays of White Dwarf magazine, RuneQuest articles and scenarios simply stopped. What was going on? Had we dreamed those hints of Games Workshop Edition? Had the deal with Avalon Hill killed the game off for good? It wasn't until 
issue 85 that those questions were answered. And RuneQuest returned to the pages of White Dwarf. And how? Games Workshop had heralded their new hardback edition of RuneQuest 3 with a bit of a RuneQuest special edition issue, featuring a cover image from the game and a 16-page epic adventure, A Tale to Tell by John Quaife. Set in Glorantha and featuring more brew than you could shake a chaotic disease stick at, this scenario felt like a perfect reintroduction to RuneQuest. It started with a quick guide to Pract and Pavis, just enough to give you a flavour of the setting, but not too much to put off the Glorantha scaredy cats like myself. Then we were on to the adventure proper. Duke Ross of Rome, a lunar landowner who originally had hired the PCs to kill a seemingly indestructible individual leading a group of brew. Is group the right collective name for brew? Maybe infestation would be better. They had been causing trouble in his lands. The plot featured an arcane scroll, a hidden shrine, vicious ghosts and plenty of blood and thunder. No basket weaving or cow herding here. The adventure took the players deep into the wilderness to find a shrine to a chaos god hidden deep within a cavern. John Quave darkly commented that the PC should spend years looking for the correct cavern depending upon you, the games master, and featured plenty of dangers for the characters to confront. What was particularly refreshing about this scenario was that while there was a plot, the games master was encouraged to improvise around it. To that end, there was no defined climax to the adventure. All the different monsters and non-play characters had their own motivations and the desires described, so the ending was down to the games master and the players to discover together. This being RuneQuest, the stat blocks for those NPCs took up a hefty chunk of those 16 pages. But, as I said, John Quaife took the time to breathe life into those NPCs. The brew were particularly well detailed and made for great adversaries. The alliances and rivalries were all described, adding up to a believable ecosystem, and made this much more than a simple monster of the week scenario. The inclusion of specific tactical combat options for the NPCs was also a real help for the games master and some nicely detailed illustrations from Tony Ackland and this to my mind was very much what RuneQuest should be about. The new era of RuneQuest 3 and White Dwarf was off to a flying start but you had the impression that even having just published an edition of the new RuneQuest rules Games Workshop's heart wasn't really in it. It wasn't difficult to see why. Games Workshop had their own shiny new fantasy game, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, and so all of their creative energy was spent on that. A long-running ambiguity over the use of Glorantha in White Dwarf features, would it break the canon or not, simply didn't apply to Wolfruff and the Old World. There, 
Gaines Workshop had complete control. And, of course, looming on the horizon was Warhammer 40k and a shift away from role-playing games altogether. So, even though RuneQuest features did subsequently appear in White Dwarf, there weren't that many. It felt like they were included in the magazine as a bit of an afterthought, as an obligation to whatever deal they had with Avon Hill. The articles and scenarios that did subsequently appear were pretty good, and in of themselves, but although at times did feel a bit like the John Quaife show, as he contributed a majority of the features, including some ramblings on Jacobers and another look at demons in RuneQuest. It was a sign of the times that this had to start with a disclaimer stating that it had nothing to do with real supernatural forces. Really? But I couldn't help but come across to me as a bit of a faded copy of Dave Morris's excellent Dealing with Demons series for RuneQuest 2 several years earlier. A couple of other scenarios are worth a quick mention. When Mad Gods Laugh by Barry Atkins was an interesting mini-scenario that played out of the version of the Pied Piper story churned through a chaos blender. And The Beast of Kozamura by the always excellent Graham Davis was written for the Land of Ninja setting and skillfully mixed a tale of ruthless ambition with that of a mysterious monster terrorising the village. By this point, though, the writing was on the wall for RuneQuest in White Dwarf, and shortly afterwards for role-playing games in general. RuneQuest Last Hurrah came in issue 101, a Blood Bowl special issue, with a scenario, Trouble at Number One Inn, again by John Quaife, set in Griffin Island. I always thought it was a mountain, but maybe I'm just showing my age. The adventure was a well-constructed tale of cross and double-cross, as a number of different parties, including the player characters, tried to get their hands on a consignment of rare and valuable minerals. All good fun. But for me, there was nothing distinctively RuneQuest about it. Ultimately, you should never forget the maxim. It's a truth universally acknowledged that a RuneQuest scenario writer in possession of a good idea must be in want of a whole load of brew. Just by the rules. Welcome to the Room of Roleplaying Rambling, where I'm joined by our resident rules lawyer, joining me from his ancestral home in Little Wigan. Yes, it's Just Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Now, we've had in the dock RuneQuest Classic on second edition. We've done Mithras, mm. which was once known mm. as uh, RuneQuest 6. But we're now doing RuneQuest 3. Now, we wouldn't normally mm. do something like that. So why, why, are we, why are we putting RuneQuest different editions into the dock? Um, I'd like you to answer that. I find this a very depressing experience having to get this out again. You see, I, de- I define myself as a as a grognard, because mm. I am open to I am open to new ideas, but yes. I am of the view that all editions can coexist, and you just play the edition that you want to play. Don't necessarily believe in the idea that rules progression or improvement 
is an iterative process that there's an inevitable perfectibility that somehow the more editions that are produced it'll get better and better yes yes uh, i will uh, and if ever there is an example of that theory runequest three is it yes and i think that's I why think... i think that's why it's worthy of conversation because it is yeah. it could be a fish fingers moment for me this <laughs> I could be. I'm out to use the safe word. You need a safe word. It's so, upsetting, so upsetting to reread it. It brought back horrible memories. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if there's any moment you're feeling unsafe and you want us to stop, just shout fish fingers. Shout and, fish fingers. Well, the, the reason why people have, uh, why the industry has new editions is uh, it's twofold, isn't it? It's to introduce the rule set to a new set of players. And to also um, reframe it and reproduce it and bring your old players along with you. And I think the problem with RuneQuest 3 is that it didn't, did it? When it when yeah. it was uh, first released in uh, uh, 1984, that's the bit that it failed to do. It failed to bring people with it. Well, yeah. And I think one of the prime reasons for that initially, before we even got to opening the rules, was just the sheer price of the damn thing yeah i mean it, it was which was about 40 quid i think it was it's closer to 50 quid for the full set for the and full that's, thing that's then that's 84 you could buy a house in the north of england for that you still can <laughs> in some places <laughs> don't tell don't tell people in the south that the lot's going to live here but <laughs> yeah you know it's there's a lot. I mean, it sounds, I know it's, it's a cliche, but it's a lot of money in those days. There's a lot. It's a lot of money now, isn't it? And this is this is before we get onto the rules. Uh, and I can remember it being in Games Workshop in Manchester, the Avalon Hill version with the with the, the front cover with the two two warriors on the front. Um, and it was on a. I remember it being on a kind of high shelf, almost a kind of reinforced the fact it was out of. Re- I remember feeling slightly resentful about that because it was a lot of money. You you couldn't afford it, so it was like you'd been playing RuneQuest. I mean, to go back to your point about bringing the old players along. You'd be, we'd been playing RuneQuest for a number of years. It was our main game. We, we enjoyed it. We really liked it. And suddenly they redid it and put a huge price tag on. But our gut feeling was, well, it's a new edition. It'll be better. It'll it'll iron out some other creaky bits in RuneQuest 2. And it did have a it did have an appeal in that sense because you're right, it was on the top shelf and it was sealed in plastic so you couldn't browse through it. You yeah. couldn't look at it. You <laughs> yeah. couldn't look at yeah. it. I got an armed guard next to it, like the Crown Jewels. So yeah. expensive. <laughs> and it had, it had, uh, you know, it described itself as deluxe. And you thought, yeah, that's right. Yeah. This is a prestige product. This is something to have. There is no way we would have had fifty pounds. There's no. It was hard yeah. enough persuading my mum and dad to buy me Cults of Terror. You know, mm. I had to say that it was somehow going to help me in my studies at school. Fanatar all level. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> Mali is going to turn up on this year's uh, exam. I need to have it. Yeah, Tarot, Oliver. He's got a C plus in chopping heads off. <laughs> and, and I think the reason, just to come back to my earlier point, looking at different editions of uh, RuneQuest, it's a bit like our life story in gaming, isn't it? So there's mm. different milestones along the way. The third edition was the point where we were cut out of it because... We assumed, didn't we, that that would be the end of it. So all those quirky products that we used to enjoy from Chaosium and mm. the way that they looked and the way that they, you know, things like Troll Pack and uh, mm. Borderlands were just nice objects to have, weren't they? Because they had the, yeah. the way they looked and the way they were designed. 
we, we just thought that's gone now, isn't it? That that has been cut off and it and it's finished. For, uh, yeah, three years later, um, the Games Workshop edition was produced. They took that box set and they turned it into uh, two hardbacks: the Ringquest rules and then the Advanced rules. Advanced, yes. the Advanced Gamer, which of course we bought. You know, it was that period when they were producing uh, the Games Workshop were producing these local versions that were in hardback. The pages always f- fell out. I mean, mine is barely holding together, and it was um, filled with art. Now, some of that art was good. Some of it was recycled, but some There's of old, it some old white dwarf covers in there, isn't there? Yeah, here and there, yeah. And some of it's genuinely terrible. There's something about the layout of it and the, the way that it looked and the way that it uh, felt. At that time, it seems like it would had sucked the life out of uh, RuneQuest. And and I think one of the things that came across very, very quickly was setting ground through anymore. It's a funny old thing. It's a funny old thing, isn't it? After years and years moaning about Glantha when it's restrictive and you don't, you don't know whether you're doing it right and this, that and the other. And actually, when you read RuneQuest without Galantha, I remember thinking, oh, it's not, it doesn't feel right. Just in a general sense, I can remember, I remember wanting to like, trying to convince myself that it was fine, it was okay. But deep down, I knew it wasn't. It just didn't feel right. Well, let's um, let's look at uh, these rules. Now, we're going to call them highlights because... Uh, well, been... I was thinking of turning the form on its head. I've got three bad rules and one good rule. There you go. Oh, you're the judge, so... It's, this is your court. Okay, but what what are the three things that you want to pick out as the, your highlights? Well, there's bad rules, you mean? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's get it right. Well, we we're not going. There's no point talking about percentages and all the usual hit locations because all no, that that's, that's, all, that's all, all given. That, the bulk of it is the same. It's the same rules. It's just tweaked here and there in rather bad ways. The the three rules I don't like are fatigue, the way they handle experience rolls and the magic systems. They're the three bits that really rubbed me up the wrong way. And when a judge is rubbed up the wrong way, it's not That's, pleasant. It's not pleasant for anybody, apart from maybe the judge. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about fatigue points then. So for people um, who are not aware what fatigue was all about, how would you describe that? Well, fatigue, it, it doubles up as two things, doesn't it? In, in request 2, you had encumbrance, um, which was, was a way of calculating how many things you could carry based on like, strength and constitution. Fatigue is based on strength and constitution, and you, the things you carry are deducted from your fatigue points, and that leaves you with fatigue score, I suppose, or whatever's left. So if you've got, I don't know, 25 fatigue points and you're carrying encumbrance of 10 you've got 15 fatigue points left and in combat every combat round you lose fatigue point and if you keep fighting for long enough you end up with negative fatigue which affects your abilities and the face of it that doesn't seem like a bad rule but i remember thinking that didn't i I mean rune quest there's a lot going on in your character sheet it's quite a kind of bookkeeping system to start with and it just seemed to add another thing to do and when, when you read, read that rule, you know immediately what goes through your head. The immediate thing that goes through your head is people will forget. Because it's not just you as a player, is it? It's Games Master. So you've got, you've got four players, and they're fighting five brew. Well, I don't know if they're not brew, are they? RuneQuest 3, orcs. You're fighting orcs. And as a Games Master, you've got to 
keep a track of the fatigue of the five orcs. So you think, oh, it seems all right, but it's not. In play, it's a really bothersome rule, I think, that every, every combat round you've got to, oh, I'm going, right, I've got to cross off the fatigue points. Before I got this in 1987, um, I was quite excited by the idea of fatigue. I know from looking at this artifact that's in front of me, this I knew that this was important. Do you know how I knew it was important? How do you know it was important? If I look at this now, using my library use, and open it on the page, in 1987 I was doing my A-levels, and at that point I was obsessed with highlighter pens. And going through um, books like um, Mansfield Park, Hamlet, uh, all those books with a highlighter pen and highlighting everything. And so it is with this rule book. So this is the only page that is covered in highlighter. It's covered so much that it'll glow in the dark. It defeats the object of highlighting things because I've highlighted everything. (laughs) Did you not buy a different colour highlighter to highlight the things you'd already highlighted that you felt? needed re-highlighting but i've also you know i've done that thing where you know a level student when you're an a level student you write in the margin uh, i don't know if you did this <laughs> yes yeah. cryptic things that you can't remember afterwards yeah what did, I, what did i mean by that question question mark eye of god or something like that you know <laughs> what what was i thinking there but in, in this i've done things like uh crooks I've written crooks. What's that was just that was a new word you'd learned doing your A levels, wasn't it? Yeah, crooks. Is that a new word? Yeah. Crooks. And uh, the crooks. I've written, I've written, I've written mine. <laughs> That's next to fatigue rule. You've written crooks. I've written crap. Because it is. The crooks of this rule, and this is why I think it it's an honourable failure rather than an outright failure. It, the crux of this rule is uh, this uh, Rune Quest has always been about simulating combat, hasn't it? Mm, uh, yeah. Uh, and it's trying to deal with that thing that Rune Quest has never been particularly good at handling, and that's the idea of um, in fiction, in, uh, in in art, the idea that the nimble, mm. lightly armoured person is able to outwit and outmaneuver and wear down a bigger opponent. So I'm thinking um, Paris in um, Wolfgang Peterson's Troy, um, the mountain and the viper in um, Game of Thrones. That's what it's trying to do, isn't it? It's trying to say that the lightly armoured opponent who, um, who can move and tire out an opponent, uh, their yeah. opposition... Is gonna gonna have an advantage. That's true. It, that's what it's trying to do. But I think one of RuneQuest's strengths, RuneQuest Two strengths, was that it always struck a balance between simulating and being playable. So there are there are other games that you know at the time tried to do simulationist combat, but went too far and became difficult to play. And that is always the problem, isn't it? That, yes, I, I can see what you mean, but it's got to be playable, hasn't it? It's just another load of round of bookkeeping. And also, I think the way it plays out in the game, it doesn't quite play out like that because most people have, you can be heavily armoured, and if you're big and strong and heavily armoured, you can have a good 15, 20 fatigue points. That's enough rounds to clobber the nimble guy anyway. So it doesn't, I don't think it quite works. I, can, I agree with you. That's, I can see what it's trying to do. 
elsewhere in the rules, I've made a big deal about how it mentions the, uh, uh, you know, my highlighter pen was out for uh, for bits where it mentions about the, the swashbuckler. Us being RuneQuest veterans, we could never quite believe the idea that you could play this game and have no armour on. I mean, uh, you, you, could, you could argue, I don't know, military specialists may write in and correct me, but you could argue that in a, in a kind of fight with swords, wearing armour is quite a good idea. <laughs> it's quite a good idea, isn't it? Yeah. One, one of the other things it does uh, in the rules is penalise plate armour. Uh, by making it incredibly expensive, as if taking a tip from uh, the price of the game itself. Um, <laughs> yeah. Something like twenty-five thousand silvers, isn't it, for a plate or something ridiculous like that? Because it's the setting. They kind of loosely talk about a fantasy Europe, don't they? So it's like the setting that they kind of allude to, although not into too much detail. Is a fantasy Europe, isn't it? And I, I take the point. Armour probably was that that expensive. In the 12th century, whatever, if you wanted a bit of plate armour, it probably was that expensive because it would have been the preserve of noblemen, wouldn't it? But it's a role-playing game. So the problem is, if someone gets hold of plate armour, if a player does get hold of plate armour, then the opponents have to have it, don't they? Yeah. Otherwise, it becomes a walkover. And then you've got the problem of, well, hang on, it's really expensive. Now my character's got some. How come every opponent I meet's got some now? Have some fun. Stop, stop charging me that much money for armour. <laughs> and making me cross off uh, fatigue every round. Yeah, the other... <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to have fun here. <laughs> and I think this um, reveals another point that I've, I've had this. I have this argument on Twitter quite regularly uh, with myself because um, nobody else engages in it. Do you ever win? No, I get uzzed uh, on that. <laughs> <laughs> on uh, on Twitter about defence. So in RuneQuest um, 2, um, defence was a way of... If you were faster and yes. smaller and the more nimble thing, you could deduct um, your base ability from your opponent's attack. And that's a pretty good abstract way of reflecting the fact that people who are quicker and smaller... Yeah. Can outwit somebody who's bigger, and, the, and that's all you really need. But I find I still find it strange that that hasn't carried through. That kind of, that that is a rule that died in uh, in the second edition. Because it's a good it's a good slick way of of dealing with that. It's better than crossing off fatigue points. Because and also if if you think about it, with defence the the benefit is immediate. As I was saying earlier, with fatigue. The, the big guy with all the armour on, he might still get 10, 11, 12 rounds of combat without any penalty whatsoever. But yeah. in, in the old rules, in second edition rules, if you've got 20% defence, that 20 is deducted from your opponent's attack roll right from round one. Yeah. So it's, you're right, it's a much better way of dealing with that issue of being quick and agile. It's quite it's quite an abstract way of doing dealing with it, but I think it's it's a good way. And I'd start the campaign here today on the Grognard Files to in defence of defence. It's a rule that <laughs> is overlooked because that's how we used to um, game the system, wasn't it? By having shimmer boosting the defence. You know, because the first rule of combat is not to be hit. And with fatigue, you you kind of got the problem of being hit right from the word go. 
you, like I say, you've got to tire them out, but are you going to survive long enough? Let's uh, let's move on to the next one. So what was the, the next one you wanted to... Uh... Okay, this one. This this annoys This really, really... This could be fish fingers, this one. This oh, okay. the fish finger moment. Okay. The experience rolls. I'll talk you through this. Okay. Now, nothing's, nothing's changed in experience. So it's a percentage system. And when you use skill successfully, you tick it. And at the end of the adventure... Now remember that at the end of the adventure, not the session, the adventure. We used to. Have, of, we used to have a real. Time. We used to have really long adventures as well. Didn't we, we did, didn't we? Uh, and that's quite that's quite an important factor in this. Uh, so when you've had a bit of downtime after an adventure, you can make an experience roll. Now you only make one experience roll. So if you've used your broadsword twenty times, then the chaos infested nest of bruise and scorpion men. You only get one experience roll, even yeah. if you've used it twenty or thirty times. But that, that, that's, that's all right, isn't it? Because you know, you, that's you, okay. You, you know, that's you, okay. you're learning, aren't you? you, you you'll okay. get better, won't you? You'll get much better at sword uh, after you would, doing that. You would get much better, wouldn't you? You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> and in in Ring Quest Two, when you didn't, when you made the roll, you got five percent. Your roll went you know, twenty five percent, went up to thirty, fifty went to fifty five. In this game, you roll a d six. <laughs> now. Just let's think about that. You've been down. You've been in the chaos nest. You fought the brew. You fought the scorpion men. You barely escaped with your life. You get back to the tavern. A bit of downtime. You think I'm getting better with this broadsword. I've been hacking things left, right, and centre. One percent. One percent. You could roll a one. Or you could roll a six. Couldn't you? Roll a six. Roll. I mean, Stormbringer does a similar thing with a D. Gives you a D10. At least it gives you a D10. You could control more than five. A D6. <laughs> I feel. I remember reading that and just thinking. I, feel, I, I just feel. I don't know. Upset. It's upsetting because it's such. It's upsetting because it's such a rubbish, rubbish rule, isn't it? Who's come up with that? Because you might not. Because the thing with rune questions, you might not make the experience roll. So you might be forty-five percent of the broadsword. You might not make the roll. So that was always a bit of a hurdle because you didn't guarantee you weren't guaranteed to make it, and then you got five percent. So you know over over the course of three or four or five adventures, you could be looking at an increase of about twenty percent, something like that. Uh, and of course, that the better you got with something, the harder it was. So it was never particularly easy, but to make someone roll a d6 is, oh, I mean, that, you just I don't know, it's just a stupid idea. I can remember reading it and rereading it. If I'd ever had highlighted then, I would have used it. I think you borrowed them all from Mansfield Park. <laughs> By the way, it, I give I give RuneQuest three its dues. It's better than Mansfield Park. Yeah, everything's better than Mansfield Park. Everything's that's a dreadful book. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, move on. Let's move on. Don't bring that up, or else I'll be having a fish finger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I, I do. I think I think it's just. Such a kind of mean-spirited uh, way of doing it that you roll a d6, you know, an average, go on, two, three percent increase. Oh God, you know, it's too um, no stingy, stingy. See, I think what it's combined, though, isn't it? It's combined with the fact that because they've taken Glorantha out of it, you don't have any sense of character progression. So. Mm. 
with uh, with RuneQuest 2, there's this idea that the courts, you progressed through the courts, you got yes. better at your skills, and you were offered more from your uh, society, and yeah. culture would offer some status on you. Because that's removed, you know, you get, you're get moving along at a piddling 1% for no yeah. bloody reason. I know there are some people who say uh, character progression shouldn't matter. And I can see that, but the problem with RuneQuest, as if you start off rolling characters from the beginning, you end up with relatively low percentages. So it is important to have that sense of progressing, that the character survived some battles and gets better at doing things, or has climbed, climbed a wall and gets better at climbing, all those kind of things. They, they do matter. And uh, the next one? Well, the next one's it's not really a rule as such. I suppose it's a set of rules. There's there's too many, and this, this is coming from someone who always likes to play the wizard. So this is this is damning criticism, I think. There's too many magic systems. So you've got you've got spirit magic, you've got divine magic, sorcery, and what's it on ritual magic. So you've got these four magic systems, and I think when we've discussed this before, there's there's the idea, I suppose, that you can have all three in your game, all sitting side by side, all sort of coexisting. Or you can pick one, maybe, and say, well, in my world, sorcery is the only magic, or divine magic's the only magic. You could, you could say that, I suppose. But it just seems like a bit of a hodgepodge. It's trying to be all things to all people, I think. And it, it gets, I think in some ways, it gets to the heart of what's wrong with RuneQuest 3. And in Glantha, you've got battle magic, and you've got rune magic. And they make sense in that world. So the idea that everyone has magic, everyone has access to magic, makes sense in a Galanthan setting. In RuneQuest 3, that, the battle, the spirit magic thing doesn't... You just think, well, why can everyone do this? And then one of the other problems is if you remove, if you remove spirit magic from the game, you lose access to healing. And RuneQuest then becomes even more deadly if no one's got healing spells. Because one of the things that always pulls you through a, a game in Galantha is the fact that most people have, have healing 2 or healing 3 and that kind of thing. So you can patch yourself up pretty quickly. If you remove that, I think the game starts to fall apart almost. These, I don't know, they, they all sit together in a sort of uneasy alliance of magic systems. And I just don't like it. Make your mind up. I think we've I think we've discussed previously, haven't we, that as a system thus far it's not dealt with uh, magic particularly well because yeah. when um, RuneQuest Two was set in uh, Galantha, you know, a completely magical world, but the magic seemed very mechanical. In this version of the rules, it becomes even more mechanical, doesn't it? And in well, it becomes. It, I think it becomes on the one hand mechanical and on the other hand slightly bewildering. Um, again. My highlighter went crazy. And sorcery, trying to understand sorcery. I, I've read it today and I still, I still don't think I understand it. I don't think I understand it. Yeah. It, it, it didn't help that uh, in the Games Workshop version it was split in half. So um, part of it is described in the uh, first rules and then it was further described in the advanced rules. So you needed both <laughs> of them really to yeah. uh, understand it. But you, you actually work out, come out away with it at the end of it, thinking these spells just wouldn't work in practice. You know, you, no. you know, you could get a fly spell, but depending on the intensity, you could barely get your feet off the ground. You know, you'd be... you have to you have to invest a lot a lot of power points in 
in the sorcery spells to make them in any meaningful in any way. And and that's that's one of the problems, isn't it? That it's taking it's taking a game system that has these PowerPoints and then trying to latch them onto a different magic system that and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. I, I think I think what the magic what having those four magic systems represents is it gets to the real crux. Can I use that word? Crux? Yeah, you can use that word. That's a good Thank word. You. Yeah, it's a good word. Um, I'm just going to write it in the margin here. Write in the margin somewhere. It's it gets crux of it that you get the feeling that this big game, big games company, has got hold of RuneQuest and they've thought for whatever I mean for licensing reasons, maybe Galantha's gone. Don't worry about Galantha. And then we'll try and make a system that can be all things to all people. And what you end up with is a system that means nothing to nobody. One of the benefits of the new approach that you've instilled in this is it means that we actually end on a high. Because, you know, normally the thing I worry about <laughs> in this segment is that we talk about four, three yeah. things that are really good and then one thing that's bad. And that's the thing that we end on. But in this in this this version... Very cleverly, you've turned it on the, on its head, and we're going to talk about a positive. It wasn't thing. intentional, but I'll take the compliment. So, what does it do really well? <laughs> I don't think it does anything. I'm not sure it does anything really well. All right, now rephrase it. What does it do better than the other things that it doesn't do particularly well? Oh. Ah, well, since you asked that, um, <laughs> I suppose the one thing I did like about it. Which was always a little bit lacking in RuneQuest Two. It does have like professions and character backgrounds in it, doesn't it? So it has sort of you know a nomadic warrior, nomadic hunter, that kind of thing. Um, it does slightly annoyingly have a have a table. So you, you know if you roll if you roll very badly on the barbarian table, you can end up being a potter or something like that. He wants to play a potter. No, oh, nothing against potters, but. Not in a fantasy world. I want to play a Potter in a fantasy world. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you could ignore that. But um, yeah, the backgrounds are quite good because in RuneQuest Two, there was always that. I mean, there, there was some. There was a bit of guidance on backgrounds, but um, it's nice to have it in the core rules. I think as part of the game. See, you picked on something that's uh, uh, interesting there because you're right. In the appendix, it did have. Uh, backgrounds didn't it? it just wasn't fully fleshed out so i think it was uh, military careers wasn't it rather than um backgrounds and if you had a barbarian yeah. background yeah. and this this does build on that and give you a bit more flavor and a bit more uh generic um abilities but i think that picks up something at a point because i think what this uh, version of the rules does particularly well is it fleshes out some of those additional rules, some of those spot rules that appeared in the appendix of RuneQuest 2. Yeah. For example, knockback. Uh, knockback in the original rules was like a, an add-on that was put on there. It was a tactical choice that you would choose to do in the middle of a fight, and that was like push an opponent down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather than attacking. In this version, you can do that, but it also applies if you sustain a lot of damage. So you take a heavy blow you could be knocked over as well. Yeah. And that's just an example of rules that are polished, if you like, in this in this uh, version. Yeah, it does have one or two things like that that are, that are quite good. I'll, I'll give it that. The thing that it also does with the uh, backgrounds is that the skills become 
less to do with dungeon delving. And this is what struck me on reading it today. So, for example, instead of um, set and disarm trap, you get devise. It's a more generic skill. That... Yeah, if you can set a trap, you can build something. The yes. two things go together, don't they? Yeah. But it also hints on the direction that um, the game was going. So, you know, in, in, in Glantha. So you also have things like craft and lore so you have an understanding of the world around you basket weaving basket weaving yeah mm. but it does it just give you it just give you that sense that it was moving away from that combat orientated uh, view that you had in the original views you know when it was done in the 70s it's getting a bit more sophisticated yeah but I, yeah you're right it, that's true but i think what's also interesting is to to kind of bring the newer version of RuneQuest, the most recent version of RuneQuest. It is very interesting that with the new version, they've made it about runes and about the culture more. Whereas with this edition, it's kind of the opposite of that, that they've moved away from it. This yeah. wasn't a particularly successful edition. Well, it's interesting to kind of bring it round to that again. Well, let's. Uh, we're going to bring that into the dock next time, aren't we? The new edition. Yeah, we're going to yeah. bring uh, RuneQuest in Glantha. We're going to bring that back, and we're going to look at that in some detail. It's interesting that they've consciously ignored RuneQuest three and taken it back to the yes. KSCM yeah. edition. And that's what I mean. It is interesting that this kind of been bypassed, hasn't it? And a lot of the things RuneQuest three did have been ignored. And yeah, yeah. Mm. Apart from Quite rightly so, in my opinion. Apart from defence, you know, how did that go? Anyway, well, yeah. I'll leave it. I'll leave it. <laughs> Before I leave you, uh, Judge Blythe, I don't say I, I never do anything for you. I've uh, compiled a quiz. I've created created a it's quiz. Not it's not about Mansfield Park, is it? No, it's not. It's I don't not. remember any of it. I'm like Noel Edmonds. Is he no, a, no, I'm an entertainer at heart. Cabaret games master, apparently. So um, the, this is my this is my new this is my new uh, thing. It's it's called the binominal nomenclature quiz. Oh yeah. So yeah. first question is how do you spell that? So binominal <laughs> nomenclature <laughs> quiz. So go on. I mean, I'm intrigued now. Is it like pointless or the chess? Go on. How does it, how does it work? Yeah, it's very it's, it's very good. You can play this at home. I do encourage you to play this at home. What the what they did in this edition, for uh, reasons best known to themselves, they had uh, a, a monster book. And in the monster book, they had a selection of monsters, familiar monsters from myths and legends. Okay. And they also brought them uh, from Glorantha, didn't they? They also mm-hmm. had a selection. They did. They brought them. some across. Again, that's that thing of a, a mishmash of got orcs and brew. Well, make your mind up. One and the other. And what they also did is, for each for each of the descriptions, they gave a, a Latinized um, form of the name. Because that's what you need, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know why. It's, I think it's this idea that it was a fantasy Earth. But... Yeah, it was. It was like a fantasy Europe. That was what the, the setting was, I think. It was like a fantasy. Because they had a Viking supplement, didn't they? Yeah. You remember that? There was yeah. A, I think that... Think there was a Viking supplement, so it was like a fantasy Europe. But the difficult with that is that binominal uh, nomenclature didn't actually come into effect till the 18th century. So, 
I don't yeah. know what to... Anyway. So what I've got here, I've got um, some monsters that I'm <laughs> going to give you the Latin name for. Oh, thank God for that. I thought you were going to give me the monster and want me to, me to come up with a Latin name. <laughs> it would have been worse. Oh, no, no, you say that. See, oh, no. <laughs> I can't do that. Just do it the original way you intended. That's why that's why Noel Edmonds does what he does, and that's why I'm working in customer yes. services. So <laughs> here we go. Are you ready? First one. Go so on. if you're playing at home, um, okay, there's five points for this one. Okay, right. you ready? Juranarus, okay. I'm gone. See, it's not good for me because I, I mangle English, so never mind bloody Latin. I didn't do Latin. Who <laughs> did? I mean, well, I, I skipped. But yeah, I skipped Latin. Comprehensive in Bolton didn't do Latin, surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> I skipped Latin to concentrate on my Brooklyn accent. Yeah. Yes. I've got, I've got it down to the you know neighbourhood. I've got a glottal do, stop. Do well, I think do the do the Latin names straight, but then repeat it in a Brooklyn accent. Okay, it might, I'll try. <laughs> it, okay. might, it might not, but it might help. Go on. Okay, you ready? First one. Hmm. Juranorussus paralysis. Juranorussus. <laughs> Forget about it. Juranorussus paralysis. <laughs> Juranorussus right, paralysis. Um, paralysis. You know, that's something that paralyzes you. Um, a Medusa. No. No. A no. Manticore. It's. Uh, it's <laughs> just throw yeah, I'm gonna have to take your first answer. All right, go on. Yeah, it's a it's a jackal bear, a jackal bear. Oh, I'll give you a clue. Yeah, I give you a clue. Yeah, All yeah, of these yeah. are Galanthus monsters. All right. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. Malasaki hybridius. Malasaki hybridius. The Brooklyn accent's helping. Is that a brew? That a brew? It isn't a brew, no. Oh, it's God. it's a octopus. Malasaki hybridus. It's a it's a octopus. I know it's bobbins, isn't it? God. Right. Here's another one. Are you ready? Go on, go on. I hope you're playing at home. That's five points for that one. If you're playing at home, well done. Okay. Caprice, phallus, chaos. Caprice, phallus, chaos. I'm going to say that's a brew. It is a brew. Well done. Five points. Oh, yeah. Oh, you might stay here to uh, play on next time. Uh, well done. That is a brew. It's a phallus. I hope not. You see, this is where I take issue with the taxonomy here because there's no logic to it because those previous two are chaos creatures, aren't they? So why yeah, why, why are you stuck chaos on the end? Yeah, why are you singling out them? Yeah, yeah. For this type hybrid hybridy thing with the walk to pie. Well, brews are hybrids, aren't they? Yeah, that's why I thought that was. And scorpion men are hybrids. They're all bloody hybrids, aren't they? Do you know what? Do you know what a scorpion man is? It's a homina scorpio devourans. So why didn't you didn't ask me that one? Because it's easy. Yeah, yeah. But you know, do you know what? You should spend more time on the rules, shouldn't you? <laughs> and less time on the fictitious Latin names. 
Last... Well, fictitious Latin names, but they've decided to give you one d six experience. Well done, Avalon Hill. Well done. Right, I'm going to end on this one. Yeah, last one. This, on. this is for the car. Are you ready? Right. <laughs> the speedboat, isn't it? Yeah. No, no water near me. Speedboat. Come on. Are you ready? It's a, it's a long one. I'm not going to do this in a Brooklyn accent. Oh, come one. on. Do it. Anatan Teropus Donaldi. Anarasta Teropus Donaldi. I don't speak Latin. And do you know what? Even if I did, I'm not sure it would help. Um, it just. I'll repeat I'm, the last. I'll repeat the last one because that'll help you. Hey, ready? Aranatatarupus. So forget that for a minute. Yeah. Yeah, I already have. Yeah. Aranatatarupus. I can't. Oh, even. There's oh, too many syllables. It's Tommy Cooper. What <laughs> doing is Tommy Cooper. For God's sake. Donaldi. Donaldi. People shout. I can. I can hear people shouting the answer. Shouting the answer. Donaldi. Donald. Oh, Donald ducks. It's a duck. duck. It's a duck. Let's see. No, Even no. in Latin, the rubbish. Right. <laughs> in room history, everything's rubbish. And you go, it's <laughs> come off worse than any game. It's the worst, it's the worst criticism we've ever piled on a game, I think. Yeah. It's not that bad. It's Runequest. It's Runequest, but we can't quite forgive it. We can't quite forgive it no, because, no. you know, when we no. started this, we talked about the milestones in our gaming life mm. and this is the one where um, it wasn't a milestone it was a stop sign goodbye Blythe goodbye Dirk there isn't another bit thank you to Mob for taking the time to speak to us about the RuneQuest Renaissance and he returns in part 2 to bring us up to date with RuneQuest role playing in Glorantha Judge Blythe will also be looking at the new rules and will get around to rolling a new character we'll also include some sample play from the broken tower which was a free quick start given away for free rpg day in 2017 it's still available if you go to the chaosium site if you want to hear a fast furious and fun actual play then head to the smart party podcast where they had a special bonus RuneQuest episode featuring a game that I ran for them. It's punchy, pacey and put some game in the game. It is a smart party after all. Now, it's that time of the year when we start planning for the production of the Grogzine. If you want to have a hard copy, then you need to make sure that you're a patron before the end of October 2018. You'll get the 2019 annual posted to you in January. It's going to include an introduction to the OSR, scenarios and an examination of the Judges Guild scenarios are all included in the next edition. Also, depending on your pledge level, you could also qualify for a collected Daily Dwarf Volume 3 and the first ever Judge Blythe's Book of Judgments. All of these projects are possible 
thanks to the generous support of patrons who provide financial support. They chip in some dollars into the beret every month as a tip. It supplemented the purchase of a new computer, making the editing of this bobbins more pleasant. A bit more pleasant anyway. And I've upgraded the hosting arrangements. Check out the grognardfiles.com and hopefully you'll be able to see some improvements to the template. We try and have an article every week, so it's worth following. Thanks to the contributors to the Patreon campaign who joined us in June 2018. At $1 a month, uh, it's a welcome to Paul O'Connor. Thank you, Paul. At $3.5, it's Eric Nelson. Thanks, Eric. And welcome. At uh, $5 a month, I, I like to roll on a table and give somebody a virtual gift from the game under discussion. This time, I'm looking at the chaotic features table. So, James Crossfield, who's uh, joined us, he gets he gets scaly skin. Thanks, James. Use a bit of cream. Be fine. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time for more RuneQuest. Now, uh, I'm on holiday for most of August, so it might be a little late if you listen to these podcasts in sequence. Don't worry, you'll get the same number of episodes in the year, but it might just be a bit later. And don't roll your eyes. It might be RuneQuest, but don't worry, there's some D&D coming soon. Adios, amigos.